My name is Kathy, and I'm really excited that you are here at Women in the Word tonight, whether you've been here for years or it's your first time. I've been coming to Women in the Word for about 15 years, and I have to say that tonight's praise time might be my all-time favorite, and I thought about maybe I should just not teach, and we should go back to praise time and hear more about what God is doing, so I'm a little intimidated about following you all, to be honest, but um, I am excited to be a part of the series this summer where we are talking about five different women that are in the Bible, and the series title, The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful, is what we've been looking at this summer, and so we've looked at some women that when we met them, we might have described them as good, some we might have described as beautiful, and when we meet this woman initially. Um, unfortunately, I think we'd have to admit that um, there's some bad and hard things that have happened in her life, some that have happened to her, some that she has chosen. And so we are going to talk about that tonight. And when we think about talking about that, I'm not sure um, what emotional response you have to thinking about talking about a woman that we might put in the bad category, for lack of a better word. But for me, I kind of feel relieved. You know why? Because I've had hard things happen in my life, and I've made bad choices in my life. And I feel like she's someone that I don't really have to pretend around. She and I could grow, grab coffee at Starbucks and chat, and I don't have to pretend like I'm something that I'm not. She and I can both have conversations about the hard things that have happened in our lives and about the bad things that we've done. And just to take a little poll, just out of curiosity, is there anyone here tonight that would say, I have never had any hard things happen in my life, and I've never done any bad thing? Real quick. I was going to tell you you could go home early, but apparently you're all going to (laughs) stay. And you can join the Woman of the Well and I in coffee, and we can kind of be a little bit real about what is in our lives and what happens when we encounter Jesus in that situation. So pull out your Bibles, and we are going to read starting in John chapter 4. And as we read verses 3 through 18 specifically, I want us to be looking for some of the hard things in our life, some of the bad things, because we're going to point that out first, see a little bit about what her life was like, and then see what happens when Jesus comes to her. Starting in verse 3, we read about Jesus, that he has left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he'd come to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I want us to step back and look at some things. We're going to have to look at it from her perspective and her culture and talk about some of the things in her life that may have been hard. The first one is uh, she was a woman. Now, we, of course, think that's the most fabulous part of the passage, (laughs) right? However, in that era, unfortunately, women were sometimes treated um, as second-class citizens. The rights, the opportunities, the privileges, the protections that may have existed for men weren't always there for women. And in some ways, she would have experienced that, and her life would have been a little hard because of that. Additionally, we see mentioned real quickly that she was there drawing water at noon. Now, who really enjoys doing gardening at noon in Texas in mid-July? No, it's hot. You don't go garden then. When do you go outside? In the morning, before the sun has come up, or later in the evening, because it's cooler then, right? We, looking back at that culture, see that often women would go to get water at the well when it was cooler, and often they would go with friends to talk, to gossip, to whatever. They would walk together to get their water and walk back. She's there at noon by herself. It makes us wonder, is that because she's kind of socially isolated? Maybe going with a woman wasn't an option for her, or she wasn't welcomed there. So... She wasn't the right gender for her culture. Maybe she wasn't socially as connected. Maybe she was socially isolated. Those things would have been hard. Additionally, she was from Samaria, and Jesus, um, or the scriptures tell us that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I want you to pull out your map, and we're going to look at it on the screen, because I want us to talk for just a minute about What is that tension? I want us to understand the history so we can understand a little bit more about this passage now and in the conversation that she's going to have with Jesus. And I just think history is really fun, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. Um, If you will look at your map, I want to really kind of take it back to the beginning. And when God created um, Adam and Eve, and then shortly thereafter, he chose a specific group of people, the nation of Israel, to be his people. And he promised them some land, some geographic land. And in Joshua, we see them getting this land. And that is the land that you kind of see in the map here and in the map that's on your table. Well, what happens over time is that this group of people, the nation of Israel, splits into the northern kingdom, up more where Samaria is, Down in Judea, there's a southern kingdom, and over time, they at times obey God, at times they don't obey God. And for a long season, there was a lot of disobedience. And eventually, God, because he's holy, and because he loves them way too much and knows what is best for them, says, this cannot continue. It's not good for my holy name. It is really not good for you. And there are going to be some consequences to this. And so God uses the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes in and they take over the northern kingdom, which is right where Samaria is. Now, what the, one of the first things they did, because the Assyrians were worried, what if those people in Samaria revolt? So they took many of the Jews out of Samaria and they took them into exile. And in Samaria, in this area, they brought in a lot of foreigners. So the foreigners were living and intermixing with the Jews. So we begin to see a creation of what 
doesn't surprise us that there would be some cultural tension that would develop because of that, right? Now, there were some true Jews that really believed in Judaism at that time, but polytheism came in. And over time, the Samaritans weren't quite on target about a number of things. And when we get to the point where God says, hey, I'm in my mercy going to bring my people, the Jews, back out of exile, they come down, they start in Jerusalem, because that is in the Old Testament where God has said, build my temple here, worship me here, down, you can see that on your map. So God brings those people back, and in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see them coming back. Well, if you read in Ezra chapter 4, if you want to go back and study this, you'll see that the Samaritans offer to help these Jews rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Now, it's a little confusing because they're described as adversaries, so I don't want to assume they have the best of intentions here, but the Jews coming back said, no thanks for your help. How well do we think that went over? Probably not so well. We see some tension creating. So what happens, which will impact what we discuss later in this passage, in the Samaritan culture and religion, what they had decided was they were going to believe the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they weren't necessarily going to buy into the rest of it. Well, the rest of it, which is God's word, is where it talks about the center of worship being Jerusalem, where it talks about that's what's significant. Jerusalem's not necessarily mentioned in that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number Deuteronomy. So what the Samaritans did, they said, well, we're going to build a place of worship, Mount Gerizim, which you'll see here on the map, which the woman is going to reference in her conversation with Jesus later. That place was a place not described by God to be where the temple should be or where you should worship, but there are instances in the Old Testament where we have some Jews like Jacob and Abraham where they go and worship there. So, or Abraham and Jacob, rather. So we see this tension develop over a period of time to the point that often Jews would not even, when going from Judea to Galilee, now remember, they're walking, they're not in their nice little car, but that tension and that distaste was so significant they would not walk through Samaria. They would walk longer, probably from Jerusalem up to where we're talking about in Samaria, where the woman at the well is, is it was maybe a 35 to 40 mile walk from Jerusalem. So the, some of the Jews would choose based on this tension, I'm going to go east over the Jordan River, I'm going to walk up outside of Samaria, and then I'm going to go back west in. That's how significant the tension was. So when we read this passage and we see that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it makes us wonder. He didn't necessarily geographically have to go through Samaria. So was his have to some other purpose? Did he have some spiritual purposes in Samaria? And that's why he had to go. Because this encounter that Jesus and the woman at the well happening isn't normal. There was a lot of tension there in the history. So this woman is not of the right gender. She's perhaps not of the right social group. She's not of the right culture or religion. She's had a hard life. Moving on to verse 18, and we're going to see something. The scriptures um, tell us that Jesus points out to this woman that she has had five husbands. We don't know if she was widowed. We don't know if she was divorced. We don't know if it was a combination of those things. 
But I don't know about you, every woman that I have met that has walked through uh, being a widow or being divorced for whatever reason, there was some significant pain associated with that. And she's done it not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times she's experienced a significant loss. And regardless of what's behind that, I have to tell you that if she and I were at Starbucks, I would stop and look at her, probably with tears in my eyes, and say, I am so sorry. That had to really hurt. That is a hard journey that you've had to walk. We don't know how old she is. The scriptures didn't tell us. With five marriages ending, it makes me think she probably wasn't incredibly young, but I don't know. But I think I would look into these women's eyes and see some pain there, and I think my heart would hurt for her. As we keep going, we see that Jesus um, clearly addresses with her that the person she is living with now is not her husband. She was in sexual immorality. Now, in our culture today, there are certainly parts where of uh, the country, different families, um, different parts of the culture where living with someone that you're not married to is considered culturally acceptable. That would not have been culturally acceptable in her time, and it definitely wasn't consistent with what God's Word says. God words, God's Word tells us that there's one man and one woman intended to get married to each other and experience emotional and sexual intimacy between the two of them and only between the two of them. And for her, that was a sinful choice. For us, that's a sinful choice, and that's hard. And the reality is that any time you or I disobey any part of God's word, any part of what God's designed for us, be it sexual immorality or something totally different, it's hard. We're sinners. We mess up. It may seem good at the moment, but there is pain and difficulty that we bring on ourselves regardless of what kind of sin we could fill in the gap with, in that blank with. And if I was with the woman at the well, I would nod at her and be it if that was my issue or if I had others, I would say, I've sinned too. And I've brought consequences and issues into my life because I too have not obeyed and done everything God has brought me to do. And here's how it's hurt me. And here's how it's hurt the people around me. Those bad choices have brought difficulty for me and the people around me. And frankly, they've made my life harder. Much like the woman at the well has had choices in her life and made choices that made her life hard. Jesus clearly kind of uses this great um, twist in a way that I just would not have thought of. Because when you're reading through this, um, you get to the end of verse 15. Jesus has been trying to convince her to take the water. She says, great, I want the water. Um, give it to me. And then like Jesus, like he goes, uh, go call your husband. And then has this husband conversation with her. And I'm like, like she just said she wanted the water. Do you, I mean, do you not look at it and you're like, it seems like, like a little bit of a non sequitur. Like, are we changing topics here? Like, I'm a little bit confused, you know? But, but stop and think about it with me for a minute. He's pulling back some layers on her, isn't he? He's saying, you know, I've got some water that'll quench you forever. And sweet friend, let's talk for just a minute about how you've tried to quench that thirst. Let's talk about the unquenched thirst in your life and where you've turned and how that's worked out. 
And Jesus does the same with us. He kind of says, Kath, let's talk for just a minute. Let's talk about the ways you're trying to quench your thirst. Maybe for us, we're looking for that value and acceptance, and it's looked exactly like hers. Maybe it's having sex with someone that's not your spouse, or maybe it's an unhealthy relationship of some sort. Or maybe it's another thirst. Maybe you thirst after comfort, and you try to find it in inappropriate ways with food, or debt, or pornography. Maybe you're looking for security, you're looking for control, and you fear and you worry and you try to manipulate every person or situation to fit whatever mold you think it is you need to fit. Maybe you're going after success at all costs. We can all sit across from the woman at the well and easily say, my, my story may look exactly like yours or may look different than yours, but I get it. I have unquenched thirst that isn't found, and I've tried. Interesting, if you have time this week, it's so fun. Go back and read in John chapter 3, because we see this man named Nicodemus. And I think it's so interesting, because we look at the woman at the well. She's not the right gender. She's not the right social group. She's not the right culture. She doesn't have the right life success. Like, she doesn't have the, she does not bring anything to the table. And Nicodemus, in a lot of ways, fills in the blanks kind of well. Like, he's a man. He's at the Pharisee, a part of a, a social group that he's connected with. And it's a, it's a religious group. He's a Jew. There's a lot of things that are going well for him. But even that, which first of all, I don't think everything in his life was perfect, but we see some external things that look that way. But guess what? Jesus had a conversation with him about. You too, Nicodemus, need to be born again. You too have some unquenched thirst. For you, all these other ways you've tried to do it, there's, there's not, it's not enough either. You too need a savior. And you know what? What has Jesus done? He has had to go through Samaria. He knows exactly what her need is. He knows her life. This is not new information to him at all. And he has had to go through Samaria and he looks at her need and her unquenched thirst and her nothing bring to the table and says, I'm stepping toward that. I am stepping into that. In Luke 19, verse 10, we see so clearly that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is why he came. That's not something he did kind of in his free time while he was here. He came for people with needs which is frankly, everyone. None of us in the world could raise our hand and say, I've got it right, I'm doing good. Jesus came and he steps toward that, he steps into that, and he still does that today. He knows exactly what your thirst are, he knows exactly what your needs are, and he, because he's loving and gracious, attempts to pull back those layers in us. And we have a choice. How do we respond when he does that? There are choices. Denial, blame shifting, anger, stubbornness that says, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> we have multiple ways that we can respond to that. And in the words of the great theologian, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? <laughs> Probably about as well as it's worked for me. <laughs> we might convince ourselves for a minute that that's a, a good way out. 
But uh, none of us have a good ending to those stories, do we? But yet, sometimes we try it. So my question for us is, for you is, have you openly discussed the hard parts of your life with him? It is not necessarily easy. It is not necessarily fun. But it's way worse when you don't. And you end up forever with unquenched thirst in a mess, making your life harder. So when Jesus comes and he starts to pull back those layers and we go, we should realize he's trying to do surgery and a Band-Aid just isn't going to cut it. And for our thirst to be quenched, he's going to cut to the chase because he loves us and because he knows there's a problem and not because he wants to be mean and pour more pain in because he's looking to heal, because he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. So what does he do? He steps into this woman's life that has had hard and hard and hard, and he offers her something different. She has spent her whole life trying to quench thirst in a certain way, and Jesus comes in and says, I've got something radically different for you. What are you going to do with it? He walks in and says to her, I can quench your thirst eternally. That thing you've been trying to fill guess what? I'm going to offer you something better than you ever thought you could get. And they began to have another conversation, which, based on our fun history lesson, should now make a whole lot more sense. Um, Pull back out your Bible, and let's look at 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Somebody comes and tells me all that about myself. I'm going to think this is a unique individual. Um, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Remember, we're talking about how the Samaritans have made a place of worship at Mount Gerizim. So she's asking a very rational, current-day question that Jews and Samaritans would have a significant difference over. And, I mean, she may be trying to deflect from the issue, I don't know. But it's also a real question. Let's see what Jesus says back to her. As she asked... Um, or she points out that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship according to the Jews. So Jesus says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He offers her two choices. He says, I have something else we need to talk about. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He is seeking her to be a true worshiper. He has through the whole passage. He's been saying, I'm the one that can quench your thirst. Think about when we're thirsty. We look for something to quench it. We revere it. We go after it. We value it. We spend time and money on it. And Jesus is saying, hey, how about let's talk about worship and spending time and money and effort and revering and looking into something. Continuing with this same thing, he's cutting to the heart and reaching her to the point that is the best part in the whole passage. I have a friend. Her name is Sarah. Um, Some of you may know her and ask her if I could share this story on her behalf. We were at a party a few weeks ago, and she was telling me about how she and her husband were planning a trip for their three boys to Disneyland. 
However, um, they were not telling the boys that they had planned this trip. So they had planned, packed, put everything in the car, and gotten up that morning, gotten the kids dressed as if they were going to school, put their backpacks on, they're sitting on the couch, dad has on his scrubs, kids don't know, clothes underneath, they all get in the car as if they're driving to school, and they start heading toward the airport to go to Disneyland. And the kids don't know. They think it is the most normal, everyday, blah day. And all of a sudden, they're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. The, the, this isn't the way to school. So they begin to ask questions, and what are we doing, and where are we going? So on the way to the airport, the parents are like, we're going to Disneyland! And the shock and screams and all that ensues, and they get to the airport, and the dad rips off his scrubs, and he's got clothes underneath, and the kids are like, Dad, you have clothes! I mean, it is a moment, okay? They think it is the most normal day ever, and then what happens? The best surprise ever. Something so amazing and so joyful that juts into the middle of their day in a way they had no expectation of. So here's a woman at the well, noon, gathering some water. The day's turned a little odd when a Jewish male, certainly not cultural that a Jew is going to speak to a Samaritan or a man speak to a woman. This is not really acceptable. It's gone a little bit odd. But then, best part in the whole passage, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he that's called Christ. So she knows enough about the Messiah. We read in Psalms kind of prophesying or talking about Jesus coming. There's lots of passages in the Old Testament about that. We've even studied that this summer as we've looked at some passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming. And she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And the scrubs come off. <laughs> and the Messiah, the deliverer, the hope, the one for which they've longing for, something that can exceed every ounce of expectation and hope that she has ever had, is standing before her. And I've imagined in my mind's eye so many times the past couple months at what she must have thought or felt like. I thought, did she tear up? Like, did she fall to the ground? Did she scream? Did she hug him? Was her mouth ache? Like, I'm just trying to imagine, like, I just want to be there. I want to watch this moment when everything and more she has ever wanted shows up and knows her and offers a grace and a salvation to step into every ounce of unquenched thirst and sin and hard and offers a hope and a deliverance and a way out that she has never experienced. And I cannot even imagine what that must have been like in that moment for her, except for the fact that he's done it for me. Thankfully, not only did Jesus show up and do it for her, it's not just for her. And it's not just for me. Ephesians 1.7 tells us this. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Every bad we've ever done, Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll die for that on the cross. I'll be raised again. I'll forgive that. I'll wash it clean. And I will give you back my righteousness if you believe in me. Why? According to the riches of his grace. 
not because you're the right gender, not because you're from the right place, not because you have the right heritage, not because you've made the right choices. Like, you bring nothing to the table. Jesus brings everything to the table. He knows he steps in, and he offers that grace to anyone that wants it. And she takes it. So the questions for us is, he's still receiving his grace and salvation. Have you responded to him? Even as you're sitting here right now, if Jesus has pulled back the layers and graciously sown you, yeah, you've made some bad choices. And no, you've got nothing to bring to the table, but guess what? I'll take that. All you have to do is say, I believe that you're the Messiah that died for me, and I want that grace and forgiveness, and it is yours just like it was for her right now. And for all of us, the question has to be, if we've had that, are we running back to that grace? Can we remember that in our mind's eye? Do we go back to the not if, but when you sinned today? Are you denying, blame, shifting, not want to talk about, not want to admit? Or as Jesus has even pulled back the things on your heart from today and offered you grace and forgiveness, are you willing to say, thanks, I needed that? Or do you want to shut the door and not go there? Are you running back to and experiencing that grace over and over again? Because it is rich and it is full and in Christ it never runs out and it is never going anywhere. So the fun thing about this passage is that it doesn't stop there. It could have stopped there and would still have been a great story, right? But it keeps going. Read with me verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Again, it's not culturally cool to do that. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She encounters grace and she rushes into the town to tell other people, you have got to come and see him. You have to come and see and experience. She doesn't say, hey, come look at my pictures of Disneyland, and I want to brag about my experience. She doesn't look at, aren't I amazing? Look at Jesus. He came to me. He rushes in with grace to, quite frankly, probably some hard people. We've just described her life, okay? Imagine the people that she's running back to. There's a really good chance she's running back to some hard people that have excluded her, talked about her behind her back, not known her. And that grace is so rich and so full that she has this grace overflowing out of her immediately to probably some really hard people. And again, I think this is so great. She says which I think is so funny, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Like, what is that? Can you imagine like running to your neighbors tonight or into work tomorrow? It's a Bible study last night and Jesus so pulled back and showed my like selfishness and self-righteousness and how I like run after and get caught up with people's acceptance and I manipulate people and I go after comfort. Like, can you imagine that? Like, like that's what she does. Like, he knows what I've done. And guess what? 
He stepped in anyway. She is screaming grace with this immense humility to some people that were probably hard. And she wants them to come in and experience the same grace that she's just gotten. So while she is rushing off doing this, um, which is so fun because, I mean, verse 30, they listen and come. Like, they come. So great. Um, Read or listen along with me as I read, um, starting in 31. While she is off doing this, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, talking to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to go and have a spiritual harvest, to look at people, to tell them about the Messiah, to offer them grace. And what is she doing? She is painting the picture in real life right now of what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. To our knowledge, she's been to no evangelism training class to tell her how to do this, which is a fabulous thing to do and I've done them and we'll do it again. But she's been so moved by grace, instantly changed that that is coming up and flowing out of her. And she is now this picture. And people believe. If she and I were at Starbucks, I would be asking for the reactions. Okay, so, so Bob, so what did he say? Sally, like what was her? Like, I mean, I, we would be getting the Starbucks look of like, we'd be a little bit too loud and the people kind of grieving you. They like, you're over the accepted amount of Starbucks volume. You know, like we would be getting that look because I would be very excited to hear about the people that have come and believe and tasted of the Messiah. Thankfully, he is indeed the savior of the world. He's the savior of all the nations, all the people, all the genders, all the hard, all the pain, all of the sins, all of the struggles, all the ways we quench our unquenched thirst. He's come to be the savior of all types of that. Not just hers, but all of them. And when you think about how he had to go through Samaria, yeah, it was for the woman at the well, but there were more. There were more people that he knew the number of hairs on their head in their life. And he came for them too. So this was a key message that we see. Now, this is more at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but we see this throughout his ministry, that he is the Savior of the world. In two key passages toward the end of his um, ministry, um, 
in death and resurrection, um, as he thinks about returning back into heaven, he is really stressing this to his disciples. He is saying in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus said to him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All the nations. And then look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as he talks specifically about this area that we've been looking at. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then going out into all Judea, and into all Samaria, and then where? All the way to the end of the earth. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He was then, and he is now. So our question is, is his grace overflowing through our words like it did for her? Is that grace bubbling up and coming out of us? Are we telling people about Jesus? Are we pointing to grace? Are we working in the harvest? And if not, perhaps the question we need to ask is, do you need a fresh drink of grace? Because if we look at her life, what is it that was transformative? What made the difference? Grace. That changed everything. In Titus chapter 2, there's verses 11 through 14, I read this, and I just think about her. If I was at coffee with her, I'd be like, hey, this verse makes me think of you. You know how you do that with friends sometimes? Like, this is the verse I would say to her. Um, Read this with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Like, that's her story, okay? We just read that. And it's that grace that does what? It trains us. Grace trains us. Grace trains us to what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave for himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people from his own possession, who are, is this not her, zealous for good works. Grace has shown up in her life and it has changed her life. It has trained her and it has changed her. I have a friend who used to ask a lot and I've stolen this question because for me, it's a question that resonates. He would ask different people, what is it that most enables you to worship? Like what pushes you toward grace? For us, it's lots of things and maybe it's different things in different seasons. For me, sometimes it's a song. Maybe it's a specific person that when you're with, it just kind of pushes you toward grace. Maybe it's a certain book. Maybe it's a certain Bible verse. Maybe it's sitting outside in nature and praying or reading your Bible or a specific place that you can serve. And I would encourage all of us, because for this woman at the well, something about that drink of grace made the difference. And so I want to encourage you and encourage me, like, do that this week. Instead of running errands tomorrow night, do that. Take a day of PTO from work. Look across the room at a friend and say, I'm going to get your kids next Thursday. You take mine next Tuesday. And let's, like, trade off. And whatever your grace thing is, you go do it and I'll do mine. Because that's the thing that made the difference for her. And if I was with her, I would tell her this. There's a song which I snuck in. I wasn't sure if I was going to tell. Like, I knew I was going to do this. I wasn't sure if I was going to tell, but this part of the story, but clearly I am. I titled, because I'm telling you about it, um, 
I titled the lesson Glorious Grace, partially because it explains her life, but partially because that's one of my things. There's a song called This Glorious Grace, and it's just one of my go-tos. Like when I first listened to it, well worth the buck 29 download on iTunes, like it might have been the only thing I listened to for a month or two. And particularly as I've been preparing this lesson, it's just been my go-to. For it, You don't have to love the song, it's fine, but it is for me. And it's just one of my things. And there are phrases from it that I just imagine myself sitting at Starbucks going, you've got to download this song. When you were talking about your life, it made me think of this. And I would repeat some of these phrases to her. God, I need you, every breath, every pulse of my heart. I think she'd nod. Um, I'm undeserving, you are high and worthy, worthy, all of my praise for this glorious grace. I think she'd uh, maybe start to smile a little bit and kind of resonate with that. God, your grace, like rising seas, has swallowed, has swallowed sin and death in me. And she might tear up because... I do, often when I'm listening to the song. And then it talks about, for his glory, I worship you. But my favorite part of the whole song is, when the song starts, it talks about this glorious grace. And as you move to the end, one word changes that, to me, is my favorite word in the whole song. She sings, Jesus Christ, my glorious grace. My glorious grace in that way that he is my glorious grace in a way that I can't communicate very adequately in words. He can be your glorious grace, our glorious grace. He was the woman at the well's glorious grace. Praise God for his glorious grace. Pray with me. Jesus, uh, you are high and worthy. I am undeserving. All of our praise for your glorious grace. We worship you. You have swallowed sin and death in us. I am so grateful that you saved the woman at the well. I am so grateful that you graciously wrote that story so that we would be able to know her a little bit and see parts of you that she got to see. And not just that, but get to experience you for ourselves. God, I pray for each one of us that whatever that thing is, that way that we... Um, experience you, that we would just do it this next week sometime, and that that grace would overflow through us in our words, in our actions, in being a part of the harvest, in the way that you have intended grace to work and to train us. Jesus Christ, you are my glorious grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll be here next week for one more week of Women in the Word. And then we'll be back in the fall on Thursday night. So be sure to be looking for that. And thanks for being here tonight.